Um, all righty. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn over um, to, uh, to John chapter 11. And uh, if you've got that, you can, turn that, you can turn those Bibles on and scroll down to John chapter 11. Or if you've got a paper Bible, you can pull that. If you don't have one, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab the one that's in one of the seats in front of you and take that home with you uh, as a gift. Um, uh, we want to make sure that, that this is the key, this is the core, this is the foundation of who we are and what we do. And so here in John chapter 11, we're going to pick up in verse 17. Um, and so in this account... We know that, that Jesus' friend, Lazarus, has died. The message gets to him. The one, you, um, the one whom you love is sick. And then before they can even get from there till there, Lazarus dies. Um, and so here we have Jesus showing up in Bethany, the town where Lazarus and his two sisters live, Mary and Martha. And so that's where we are in 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brothers. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So again, we get this introduction to the personalities involved. Martha seems proper, a little more proper. She sees hospitality as a, as a series of tasks to be taken care of. And of course, she's not wrong. Mary, on the other hand, less conventional, sees hospitality as a sincere relationship. And of course, she's not wrong. Um, any, any body of believers, families, we need, we need all of these things to be played out and lived out. Um, uh, so here we have, at the, at the, a few weeks ago, if you remember, um, Paul was, when Paul preached after I preached and, and we had talked about Thomas, and so then many of you were laughing when, when Paul threw up the, the names of all the different pastors and theologians, um, uh, many of the ones throughout history who agreed with his perspective on Thomas, um, not agreeing with my perspective on Thomas. And by the way, I think he made some of those names up, um, just so you'll know. Like the John Calvin, does that sound real to you? Like, I don't, I don't know. John Piper. Anyway, this is like that's a real person. Um, Warren Wearsby. So here you have, uh, but what's amazing about that is you, you may have missed what Paul said in the midst of that, which I think is so cool and so powerful. If you find scripture to be a dry, I'm quoting Paul McKenzie now. If you find scripture to be a dry book of historical facts, then I urge you this morning, you are reading it wrong. My daughter would say wrongly, but you're reading it wrong. Try to see the people in there. Try to see the faces behind the names. John in particular, but the Bible, especially these narratives, but John in particular gives you that opportunity to engage with these people. We know enough about Mary and Martha that if you traveled back in time and you showed up in Bethany to their house, you would probably not have to hear their names to know which was Mary and which was Martha. Because the Bible introduces them to us. They're real people. They really have their distinct personalities. And that kind of, to me, that's fascinating. I, I love that. These are real people facing a real situation. Their brother has really died. And he's been dead for four days. And they are grieving. They are anxious. If they're single women... And their brother, probably the leader of their family, has died. Man, their, their, their options are greatly limited with what's going to happen next. It's a rough situation for them. They are anxious. They are grieving them for themselves. They're grieving for their brother. And here's the problem. They know the best healer in the world, Jesus Christ. They're close, intimate friends with him, apparently. And yet their brother died. I mean, what's the value of being friends with Jesus Christ if your family's just going to get sick and die, right? 
mean, that's, that's part of the emotion they've got to be dealing with, is dealing with that question. What's the, what's the value of knowing Jesus Christ if bad things are still going to happen? That's a question we have to ask, too, and not flee from, and, and to be able to engage with as we jump into this. And this, this account, um, I'm intentionally going to end today before the culmination of this passage, because I want to leave us in the midst of this. Now, I will tell you, I was surprised. I thought this week would be more like kind of, I don't know if you've, some of you who are teachers, you get this kind of difference between teaching and preaching and then almost like a prophetic uh, pronouncement. And, uh, and I really thought today would be more along the teaching, a little bit into preaching. But it, by the end, it, it apparently is turning into this like preaching more prophetic announcement thing of um, as I'm getting into this, there's some passionate, powerful things in this little section building up towards this miracle with Lazarus. Um, that's really powerful. I, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. So it's, it's, it's possible, by the way, so, so Martha sees, he, she gets the message, Jesus is coming. We're going to talk about what, what all she might have been told, but Jesus is coming, so Martha gets up and goes to meet him. We're going to see this section, she meets him outside the city limits, outside of the village of Bethany. So she walks a decent distance. We don't know how far outside, maybe miles, it may be a few feet, we don't know, but she meets him It may be that Martha is just being more hospitable, and it may just be that Mary can't move. Mary may be so stricken by grief that it's a common Jewish expression of overwhelming grief to just sit. You may know that. You may have experienced that too, that when you're so overcome with grief that you just can't move, it's like your body shuts down. We read all throughout Scripture of people who sit in ashes, for example. They wear wear uncomfortable clothing as they sit there and just suffer in their misery. And that may be what Mary is doing here. She can't even move. Maybe. We do know like, that Mary liked to sit. She sits at Jesus' feet another time. This is, maybe this is how Mary thinks. Anyway, the identities of these people are very cool. And we get to see Martha coming to meet Jesus. Is it, is it in great joy? Or is she storming to go meet him in frustration to confront him? And different commentaries, by the way, commentaries are books written over the centuries by different experts who, who offer up their opinion as to these different passages. And the commentaries, because it's personality-based, are all over the map with this. Some think that she is filled with joy and excited and hope that Jesus has come, and others think that she's angry and rushing to confront him. And the truth is, we don't know. My guess is, both. Just like we are. When we face tragedy, when we face horrible things, when we're when we face these type of challenges, we are filled with grief, sadness, rage, all of it, and at the thought of, of, of the truth of who God is and who he is in our lives, that can create a sense of relief and comfort, but mixed with anger and pain. And I think that's what we're dealing with with Martha. I think the answer is both. She is moved by her emotion. A messenger has said Jesus is coming, so she jumps up. And in verse 21, she, she reaches Jesus. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, a great little juxtaposition there. She calls him Lord and then questions, at least gently. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Is a gentle rebuke, an expression of confusion, a lament. Why weren't you here? Still, she's heard of the raising of Jairus' daughter, maybe. Remember, this is a, Jesus has already raised someone from the dead, the daughter of Jairus. Um, near Capernaum, he, he raised a, a little girl from the dead. Do you think there's some thought in, in her mind? 
Maybe, maybe we'll get to experience that. We, we really don't know. It is unclear in the passage exactly what she's asking or what she is intimating. What is she hinting at here? Maybe she thought it. It may be possible that the messenger, when they showed up, said, Jesus is coming. And by the way, before he left, one of the last things he said when he left um, the Jordan River was this in John eleven four. 4. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Maybe she knows that's part of what Jesus said before he left. Is there some sense of hope? Could it be that Martha thinks, maybe my brother will live again? We really don't know. It's not clear what she thinks, what she expects, what she hopes for. And again, as always, with stuff like this, the commentaries are all over the map. Some say yes, some say no. But here's what she does seem to know. She seems to be able to say, God is good. Jesus is good. Jesus loves me. We know he loves our family. He loves us. And whatever is going to come next is going to be founded in the love of Jesus for us. And, and that is true. She's able to accept, I know you give good gifts. Have you, have you ever found yourself praying this? Because by the way, this is faith. Faith is not knowing what God is going to do. That's presumption. Faith is knowing what God can do and knowing his character. He may do what we ask him to do, and he may not. When it comes to this stuff, he does what he promises. If he hasn't promised it, don't count on it. He's still who he is. He is still God. So she says this, and Jesus in verse 23 says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So let's pause and realize a couple of things. One is, Jesus told his disciples, I'm glad for your sake that Lazarus died. I'm glad he died so that you could learn what you're about to learn. So that you could experience what you're about to experience. But so let me just, let me just pause and as, as strange as this may sound, say this. I'm glad Lazarus died so that we would get the next few verses in the Bible that we get. Some of the most significant and powerful verses, words ever spoken by anyone at any time, anywhere, is what we're about to run into. Here you have this situation where she says, I know that my brother will rise again on the last day. This is the question of the resurrection. Now, different theologians, if you read and you study this, they're going to delineate between, for example, the daughter of Jairus and Lazarus as being resurrected, meaning raised from the dead. That is not the same thing as the resurrection. Think of this as a resurrection. It is someone who is, and sometimes in the, in the theology circles, they will call this revivication, or revivification, I think may even be how some say it. But the, the idea that brought back to life, reanimated and refilled with the soul, the person of Lazarus. That's not the same thing as the doctrine of the resurrection. The doctrine of the resurrection is one of the core teachings of Christianity. It's one of the most fundamental and unknown and misunderstood doctrines within Christianity. And in fact, Jesus, by the time we're done with this little section, is going to clarify that it's not a doctrine, it's a person. That's going to be really cool when we get there. But that's, that's what's going on here, to rise up. Mar Martha is acknowledging the fact that the resurrection maybe is a great comfort. 
And by the way, for those of us who have lost people, the resurrection, capital T, capital R, the resurrection will happen in the last day when all will rise. All of dead humanity will rise from the grave. That is the great comfort. When my grandfather died uh, numerous years ago, I was out at Pine Cove and they made this big card. It was really sweet, this big card um, saying, you know, and everybody wrote in it. And there's a gentleman named Rod Spelbring who was on our maintenance team, great wisdom. And all he put on it was, Chris, our hope has never been in this life. It was always in the resurrection. Rod. And listen, that is truth. This world is not, in the end, our home. And for all the awesomeness and for all the good things that it offers, for all the great good gifts that we have, the fundamental truth of Christianity is this isn't all there is. This isn't it. And for some people who have had really, really hard, horrible, abusive lives, that's of unimaginable comfort. But even for people who have had awesome, great lives, who don't have a whole lot of things that they've had to grieve or face, and you will, it, it is still of great comfort, this thought. To be reunited, as we're going to see. This is the, I want to make sure you understand the doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection. What is the right teaching about the resurrection? Because the resurrection was not invented for or by Christians. It precedes Christianity. The Jewish faith was largely built also on this concept of a resurrection. This idea of a resurrection, that, that there would come a day when, when everyone would rise from this. That's why Martha knows this doctrine. It was what divided what the Pharisees from the Sadducees, among a few other things, when you read in the Bible, this idea of a, of a final resurrection. Here's what you get. Let me show you some of this. This goes way, way, way back. This is such an important part, by the way. Um, I'm going to just read to you from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing about the resurrection, and here's what he says about the resurrection, Okay? If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So one, the hope of the resurrection. Jesus was the first to be resurrected. Not just raised from the dead, resurrected. A new body. The new fullness of his person experienced there. Your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they just perished. So if there's no resurrection, bye. There's nothing else. It's one of the things that I find most offensive about the atheist mindset, the secular mindset. It's so hard for me to wrap my gut around this, the idea that this is all there is. Sorry, this is it. What you call love is just the desire to reproduce. What you call family is just genetic preference. What you call friendship is just a pack instinct. It has no meaning. None of this has any cosmic or eternal significance at all. This is all there is. We're just biochemical machines that wander around until our biochemical machine stops functioning and then we fall down. That's it. There's more than that. And for time immemorial, the Jewish people have taught that, as by the way, have many, many, many other faiths. But listen to what he says in 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, even if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are, to quote the Apostle Paul, of all people, most to be pitied. Listen, if there's no resurrection, then Christianity is a joke. Christianity is a big joke. Following Jesus is a big joke. I would go so far, I don't want to misquote Paul by paraphrasing him, but it feels to me like the Apostle Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection, there is no Christianity. It's just a big lie. 
And I agree. When someone says, so you're putting everything you have, everything you have on the idea that this guy was resurrected 2,000 years ago, the answer is, yep. That's it. All in. Our eggs are all in one basket. If that didn't happen, oops. Right? We're in deep trouble. We've totally missed it. So when you look at, I love looking at rabbinical web pages when I'm looking at, the, at Old Testament passages and Hebrew scripture passages. What I love is that when you look for the resurrection, past scripture passages for the resurrection, the rabbinical pages and the Christian pages go to the same pages. They go to the same places in scripture. Daniel 12, 1 and 2. And at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble as never been seen since there was a nation until that time. That time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Many who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Everyone. Ezekiel 37's imagery of the dry bones coming back to life. I'm not going to read all of that. It's a lengthy passage, but you can go to Ezekiel 37. As the dry bones are brought back to life. Exodus teaches something, and Jesus makes this teaching clear in Mark chapter 12. Mark is talking to the Sadducees, I mean, Jesus is talking to the Sadducees, and um, he did not get along well with the Sadducees, by the way. Um, he and the Pharisees bantered a lot, um, and in the book of Mark, you sometimes, especially you get Jesus being a little bit of that Yoda thing, where he's like being to not totally clear with what he's saying, because he's making them work for it. Um, that's not how he talks to the Sadducees. He does it with the Pharisees and the scribes, not the Sadducees, so... Jesus, at the end of a comment that's about something totally different, he tags on in verse 26, 12, 26. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? Which, by the way, that's all sarcasm. You ever read that passage, Sadducees? You know, the one with the bush? The most important passage in the entire Bible of the Hebrew Scripture. Y'all ever read that one? I don't think you've ever read that one. You know, the one with the bush. I love that. Anyway, it was on fire. Do you recall that part? Anyway, sorry. This is, this is just straight kind of mean. But the, um, in the passage about the bush, what God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. After teaching this, uh, Paul came up. I mean, I, I was, I mean, this is Jesus saying, you're dead wrong. You've totally missed it. Ah, big X, you're wrong about the resurrection. And this was one of their two big points the Sadducees, was that there was no resurrection. And Jesus like, on that one, wrong. You completely missed it. Paul said the word, the, the word there in the Greek um, indicates like being off the right path. Like you, you missed it. You're, you've not on the, you totally missed the road. Like you're someplace totally, you're not in the right zip code. You're off left field. That's, that's the language being used there. You missed it. There is a resurrection because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will be brought back to life. They will be resurrected. Um, we see it again. He's quoted, by the way, from Exodus 3. That's what Jesus is quoting. 1 Corinthians 15, another one. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. That's a fascinating combination. If there is a natural body, then there's a spiritual body. And maybe the one we're most, that's most famous is 1 Thessalonians 4. We do not want you to be misinformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, euphemism for death here, that you may grieve as others do who have no hope. See, this is why we don't grieve in the same way. We have hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. If the thought of the resurrection does not encourage you, if it scares you, then you're not understanding it correctly. It's this hope. We don't, it's not that we have no hope. Um, the, the, after the first service, Doug Foreman, uh, whom some of you may not know is a pastor as well, he said that when he, and he has had faced numerous, numerous significant deaths in his life, as, as much tragedy through death as anyone I've known. And Doug said when his, I think it was when his first wife died that he said that God gave him this analogy, this word that hope is really having our perspective eternal. Um, that's not bad. So, as comforting, as encouraging as these concepts are, Jesus answers her with the perfect answer. Oh, you believe in the resurrection? You believe in the great resurrection? She says, I know that my brother will, be, will rise again in, the, in that last day. And, and I kind of get worked up in this, and, and I really thought I was the one who discovered this for a while until I started actually reading commentaries, discovering this is not, not new. Um, Jesus' response to her is so key, and it's so powerful. And, and I want to I put a powerful emphasis in it, like a pounding of the table or a, or a pounding of a stone or a tree so you say you believe in the resurrection? I am the resurrection. You're speaking to the resurrection. It's not, I'm the resurrection and the life. It is, I am the resurrection and the life. This isn't a doctrine, merely. This isn't a concept, merely. This isn't a teaching, merely. It's a person, and you're speaking to him. Now, given her grief, I can't imagine Jesus doing it that way. So instead, I, which is how I, that's how I understood it, that's how I hear it, I'm imagining instead Jesus reaching up to this broken sister who is afraid and alone and surrounded by maybe professional mourners and people who won't give her a moment's rest for four days. She's like, I, I know he'll be raised from the dead. I mean, I know that's comforting, but you can still hear the disappointment in her voice. And so maybe, maybe what Jesus does is reaches out intimately and takes takes her chin and lifts up her chin and looks her in the eyes and says, oh dear, I am the resurrection. I am. It's me. You're talking to him. Listen, listen to the language he uses there. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he lives. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is, this, is, this is amazing stuff. By the way, the word never there. Those who believe in me shall never die. That's the same word never that we looked at before. The emphatic, absolute, not no, heck no. Never, not ever, never, never going to happen. No, never. It's the language is the most powerful way to say the word uh-uh. No. I can't even say it the way rednecks would say it, right? 
This is the this is the key to Christianity, a powerful reminder of the message of John's gospel. If you thirst, you need water. I am the living water. Are you hungry? You want bread? I am the bread of life. This happens all throughout John. We're going to run into it multiple more times as he clarifies. No, no, it's me you're talking about. I am this person. Did the earth rattle when he says this? Does it shake? Did a new song begin in the throne room of God at this moment? This is, this is what a declaration. Just, we want to, you, you read it, you want to pound your fist. Jesus looking her in the eyes. Do you believe that I am? Do you faith that I am? Are you persuaded that I am? It's me. Those who faith this, they don't die. Instead, they live. Those who faith this never die. Even if they die, they don't die. Not ever, never. Do you believe this? This is a key question. It's, it's really cool that Jesus tacks us on to the end. He just told her, if, if you follow, if, if you believe that I am, that I am the life and that I am the resurrection, if you follow me, if you accept this free gift of me, then you don't ever die. Do you accept this free gift from me? Is this an interesting clarification that Jesus has here? Do you, Martha, in this moment, believe this? Her brother is dead. Do you believe this? This is an important question. Does this all apply to you, in other words? This is the question we all walk away with today. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. I've been persuaded. The Cambridge, the Cambridge Bible commentaries actually says that they think the language is this. I have convinced myself of the truth of this. I've allowed myself to be convinced of this truth. I have been persuaded, and I do believe it. And another commentary referenced that John 11 is the answer to the questions of the book of Job. That's a whole other sermon. I saw that, and I had to just like skip it. Otherwise, I'd have been, I'd, I mean, that's a rabbit hole I'd have been in for two weeks. Like, oh my gosh, is that right? Can't even look at it. This is a, that the questions we ask in the book of Job, why God? How? Who's going to fix this? This is awful sometimes. The suffering and the death, the death of relationships, the death of, of our very lives, the death of our children. The very things that we're facing, that, that the Richardsons are facing, these questions, these are right questions and are good questions. And the answer is not some, some doctrine. It is a person. Who's going to fix this for us? And Jesus says, I am. I am. Yahweh. That's me. So when she had said this, she then went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went with her. Jesus had not yet come to the village, was still in the place where Martha had met him. So is this to protect Jesus? Some people think so. Jesus, remember, the, the Jews who are in her home right now are the ones who want Jesus dead. So is this like, hey, you need to come see Jesus, but we don't, she can't come in and go, hey, Jesus is right out there, because these are the people who want to kill him. They're only two miles from Jerusalem where they tried to kill him before. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's just, hey, this is private. Mary, you need to talk to Jesus. You got it. Mary, you got to hear what he just told me. You got to hear what, the way he just shared it with me. You got to answer his question. He's got a question for you, Mary. Do you believe this? You need to go talk with him. Mary, being the poker player that she is, just jumps up. Now, probably from sitting and, and, and unable to move, the same woman now 
brought to life almost, excited. Jesus is here. She rushes out with such speed that, that, that all of the, the people who are present, John gives us this, it's so funny that John gives us this information. She jumps up and the Jews who were with her in the house who were consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out and they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to weep. And they don't even, they're not interested in going to see Jesus. There's probably a hidden message here. They're not looking for Jesus. Now they're going to find him, but they're not looking for him. So they jump up like to go, I, I don't know, some, some commentaries really are hard on these Jews, by the way. It's like, they're, they're wanting to go see the show. What's going to happen when Mary goes, Mary who's been sitting here for four days now jumps up and runs to the tomb. What, oh, what are we going to get to see now? Because some people think these, these Jews who are here are, are essentially like professional mourners. Like they're not here because they actually care about this family. They may be. We don't, we don't know that. Um, but regardless, there's, there's a lot going on here. We get this, um, Martha, Jesus' words. I uh, don't want to do that again. Okay, so, so we get to where she's going to, they think she's going to go mourn. But the truth is, it seems like maybe she's hopeful because Jesus is here. Verse 32, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Aren't sisters funny? I mean, these two women could not be more different from each other in some ways. And yet exactly the same words that Martha said when she showed up. The difference is Mary's on her face at Jesus' feet. So they're very different. And yet somehow the same words come out. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. They said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Multiple different emotional, language, emotional words going on here, deeply moved. This is what Paul was talking about a couple of weeks ago when he referenced the overview here. Deeply moved here, literally from the idea of roaring like a lion or snorting in rage like a bull. Deeply moved here doesn't mean sad in this one. It means angry. The next one, deeply troubled, stirred up, feeling disequilibrium. Technically, the language here is he troubled himself. He was stirring himself. One commentator said, this isn't an, eternal, an internal emotion. It is an, out, an external expression. Jesus is visibly moved. He's, he, is, he is behaving differently. And then he weeps. And the language here is, is, is extreme language, like a child weeping, overwhelmed with emotion. And so the commentaries are all over the place. Is Jesus angry at the hypocrisy of these Jews who are out to kill people, and yet they claim to be mourning the death of someone he loves? Or, or is he sad for this family? Is he heartbroken for this family? Literally, commentaries went this far. One, one said, Christ's tender sympathy with his afflicted friends troubles his spirit. Another one says, it is the hypocrisy of the people seeming to profess comfort when they are really filled with hatred that stirs his spirit in an anger so intense that it causes nerve and muscle and limb to tremble beneath its force. I think the answer here is yes. I think Jesus is fully human and he is experiencing the grief and the rage and the pain and the hurt and the anticipation all together, just like we would. It's not one or the other. It's that Jesus, being a human, is experiencing all of these. Is he sad alongside his friends? Does he have the spiritual gift of crying? One of my therapists, um, Amy Waters, that's what she says. She has a spiritual gift of crying. Um, if, you, if you want someone to cry with you, she's who you schedule with, because she's gonna. Is he angered by the cosmic abuse of his antagonist's death? Yes, that too. 
Is he annoyed at the mourners and maybe even like the, some of the customs that are involved with this? Is he frustrated by religious leaders? Is he sad to bring Lazarus back to a broken and hurting world? Yes, yes, yes. I think it's all of those. It makes total sense. He is fully human. He's experiencing the fullness of the experience as a human. It's an academic concept. It's the real thing. 37, some of the Jews say, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind? Man also kept this man from dying. Yeah, remember, remember when they were not trusting and they were all doubting about opening the eyes of the blind man born blind and now they're using that same miracle against him. Now they're using it to criticize him. He could heal a blind man, but he couldn't heal his friend Lazarus. Wow, you just can't win with some people, am I right? That's what is going on here. This is not the first time this, this miracle is referenced. So much is built on the miracle of him opening the eyes of the blind. That shifts in the second part of this chapter because it's not going to be that one that becomes the shifting point. It will become this one. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And here's where we're going to stop. A little bit of this is a lesson. Her brother is dead. If she and Mary are single, they may have little recourse for a good life without the help of family. If he was the only family member left that they had, they face troubles. They mourn. They're anxious. They're upset. They're frustrated. They have questions that no one's answering for them. Just like us. The story of Lazarus, though, is among other things a story of hope. And at the surface level, it seems to be the hope of two sisters who hope Jesus is going to do something for their dead brother and them. But at the level that really matters, it is a communication of hope for the human race. It's a hope that's deeper than that. We're going to leave the story in a position where we are stuck at the place of hope only for another week. Nothing more than hope. Sometimes we have to sit in our condition of nothing more than hope. Will he act? Will he do what I ask? Is he going to do it the way that I want? Is he going to act in the way that I want him to? Did these sisters know what was about to happen? No. What did they think was about to happen? Unsure. On earth, listen, on earth, we aren't sure what God is going to do next because he's not told us. That's part of the pain of life is there is injustice and there is death and there is challenge and there is frustration and sometimes God steps in and he makes things right and sometimes he doesn't seem to do so in the moment and he doesn't promise to do so in the moment. He doesn't promise to take away all our pain. In fact, we're going to get to John 14 and he's going to say, oh no, there's going to be trouble in life. He's going to promise that there is trouble. That's in life. However, when it comes to life forever, we don't have to wonder what he's going to do because he's been abundantly clear. Back to verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? That's the prayer that I want to pray is that if there's anybody here who's not trusted in Christ to be the one, to be the I am who saves and gives life and life abundant and life eternal, life after life, then I hope that you will be convinced by that and, uh, and follow him in that. So let me pray, um, and we'll pray for that, and we'll pick up next week, and, you know, spoilers. No, no spoilers this week.
Don't read ahead. Father, thank you so much that we can trust in your goodness even when we don't always see it. God, there is a certain amount of trust that is required for that. We don't always see good things happen on earth. But of course, you told us that was the case. We trust you to tell us the truth. The truth is that there is suffering in this world. Someday Mary dies, and Martha dies, and John dies, and Lazarus dies again. And death is a part of living here on this fallen world, and decay, death of Death and decay of relationships and of friendships and of family. We face hardship after hardship sometimes. God, I thank you that in our heart we can know that someday there will be a new earth and it will be under a new heaven and we will be new people living in your new city, experiencing a new depth and breadth of eternal life. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Pray that your spirit would move in anyone's heart who has not believed. I pray this in the name of your son. Amen.